Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, focusing specifically on the work of the Holy Spirit. So Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world in order that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to be adopted sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Jesus Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. That was to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. Now in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of God's glory. You may be seated. So, as I said last week, we began a mini-series called Spirit-Filled And what we're doing through this series is we're exploring what the Christian's relationship is to the Holy Spirit. What does that look like? Or what does it mean to live a life filled with the Holy Spirit? And last week I I shared a little bit of an autobiography um, about my own experience of um, being told about the Holy Spirit and, and seeing things that I just felt were a little too extreme for what I found in the Bible, and it left me hopeless, it left me feeling condemned, it left me feeling like I was doing something wrong, and so I was being punished by not having the Holy Spirit. And so then I went to the other extreme, you know, and I decided, well, I'm not even going to focus on, you know, you know, what we often call the gifts of the Holy Spirit or, you know, a, a feeling of the Holy Spirit. But I'm just going to focus on what the Bible says. I'm going to look at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and you know, focus on adoption and focus on my own life of holiness and obedience to God. But still, I would read passages in the scripture about being filled with all the fullness of God. I would read passages in the book of Acts about the apostles in the early church being filled with God's spirit and giving them boldness, giving them a new passion for Jesus and, and God doing amazing things through his church. And it left me again, just, man, is there something more? Is, is, am I lacking something? Am I trying to do Christianity with my hands tied behind my back? Because I am not seeking the Spirit, asking for the Spirit. And so I talked a little bit about my own experience. And what we did last week is we just looked at the life of Jesus because the Bible says that Jesus had the Spirit without measure. He had the fullness of God's Spirit on him. And I thought what was interesting about it is that you don't ever see Jesus doing anything Weird. I mean, Jesus is strange. Don't get me wrong, right? He's totally strange. I mean, who walks on water? Who makes, you know, a feast out of, you know, a couple loaves and fishes and feeds thousands of people? That's strange. But Jesus isn't weird. 
He doesn't like walk up to people and just start saying things that have nothing to do with their life, uh, prophesying over them. He doesn't speak in tongues that people don't understand. He doesn't just do magic tricks. He doesn't bark like a dog. And these are things that have been attributed to the Holy Spirit in Christian history. And so when we look at the life of Jesus, we say, okay, Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. And it means that he lives a life of holiness and obedience to God. But it also means that he has miraculous power. And remember, we were looking at how Jesus... Sometimes we overemphasize the divinity of Jesus, meaning the fact that he's God, and we underemphasize his humanity. And from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Paul tells us that everything that Jesus does in his humanity, or excuse me, everything Jesus does in his earthly ministry, miracles, the raising of the dead, the walking on water, the healing the blind, the directing the fish into the nets of Peter, James, and John, All of the miraculous power is done through his full humanity and his dependence on the Holy Spirit. And not because he's God in the flesh. He is God in the flesh, but it is the fullness of the Spirit that enables Jesus to do all that he did. Now, Jesus is our pattern. So I think that the way, it seems to me that the way the life of the Christian should go is twofold. And we're going to look at this for the next two weeks. We are to live lives of holiness and obedience to God. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit, focusing on the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are all virtues, inter, inner, excuse me, not inter, inner qualities of the person. That's what the Spirit does in us. He makes us like Jesus. And then there is also power from on high. There's also manifestations of the Holy Spirit. There are also words of wisdom, words of knowledge, tongues that we don't understand that God gives interpretation in order that the church can be encouraged and built up and that God might be glorified. So that's the next two weeks, what we're going to be looking at. So this morning, we're going to be looking at what the Holy Spirit just does in the life of the Christian. All right. One more thought before we get into this. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, I don't really care about the Bible. Uh, I definitely don't care about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Spirit, whatever that means, right? But, but here's a, just a question to you. Do you long for fullness? Are you spiritually thirsty? Do you find yourself going after all sorts of things, different hobbies and um, Things grab your attention for a season, but they they leave you wanting. They leave you restless. Do you have that experience? I know I do. See, when Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit, he talked about it as being an inner fullness. Listen to this. It says in the Gospel of John, on the last day in the great day of the Feast of Booths, a Jewish Christian festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from them. Excuse me, from within them. And John makes a comment here. He says, by this, Jesus meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. For up to this time, the spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. 
See, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is the person who will bring what every human being since the beginning of time has looked and longed for, inner fulfillment, a quenching of the soul's thirst, and not only a quenching um, for themselves, but their lives will become a source of life and refreshment to those around them. I think that this offer alone is enough to get you to listen to what the Bible has to say about the Holy Spirit. Every single one of us longs to be filled. We long to be satisfied. We long to be contented. And Jesus says that he has what we're looking for, and it comes through the Holy Spirit. So what does the Holy Spirit look like in the life of the Christian? That's what we're going to look at this morning. So what does it mean to be a spirit-filled Christian? Well, the first thing, uh, and again, we're looking at specifically the life of the Christian. So what happens to the Christian? Not before you're a Christian, but what happens as you become a Christian? Well, the first thing that happens is the Holy Spirit regenerates. The first and primary way that the Bible speaks about Christians being filled with God's Holy Spirit is in terms of new birth or salvation. Uh, Here's the definition here. Regeneration is the act of God by which a principle of new life is implanted in an individual and the result is that of a new governing disposition of the soul that is now wholly set apart and of God, not just flesh, not just human. It's of God. God gives us a new disposition. In the Old Testament, God spoke in this way. You know, you can read through the Bible. Anybody ever read through the book of Nehemiah? Like, I don't even know what that is. It's a book in the Old Testament. And it's after the Jews had been taken into Babylonian captivity. They've come back and they want to rebuild Jerusalem because the walls have been smashed. The temple's been destroyed. And so many Bible teachers and pastors and churches teach through the book of Nehemiah when they are building their churches. Like if they're doing a project, they're like, all right, yeah, you know, it's a building project in the Bible. We'll do a building project teaching, you know, and like get everybody rah, 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 rah. The interesting thing about the book of Nehemiah, this is the point of the book of Nehemiah. You can build and restore all you want. It is useless without the power and the gifting of the Holy Spirit. It's an empty shell waiting to be filled. You can reform your life. You can be holy, you know, try to live a good moral life. You can do all these things and it is absolutely useless, powerless, ineffective without the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And Ezekiel, God spoke that he would do a new work in the last days. He would fill up those empty vessels, those shells He would give them new hearts and new minds that they would desire God. They would desire the things of God. See, that's what happens in regeneration. God takes humans that are broken and sinful and are just these empty shells and even if they are morally reformed or whatever they might have done in their lives, it doesn't matter. He fills them up with his spirit and he makes a new disposition. And with that new disposition, there there comes new longings New desires. We're no longer desiring the things that we used to think would fill us and would satisfy us. Now we have a hunger and a thirst to know God, to experience God, to be with God's people, to tell other people that don't know about God. Tell them the good news about God. We get a new disposition. Titus, Paul puts it like this, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward humankind appeared, 
It wasn't by works of righteousness, which we had done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And this was through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. See, the the teaching of the Bible, like, gosh, 80,000 foot view of it, um, we're told this, the eternal son of God came to earth as the human Jesus, and he did so in order to rescue humanity along with the rest of creation from its separation from their creator and from the destruction and breakdown of sin. That's human selfishness and rebellion. Jesus rescues humanity by assuming the debt and payment of all the sin of humanity. All the sin, evil, and destruction of the human race. This is done by his sacrificial, substitutionary death on the cross. Jesus dies for our sins, like the Bible says. He dies in our place. And now the risen and exalted Jesus, because three days later the Bible says he rose from the dead. He now grants each person the offer of coming back to God, joining God's family, God's kingdom, getting a new disposition. Uh, There's a whole new way to be human now through Jesus Christ. And this work is the work that is done by the Holy Spirit. Jesus wrought our salvation, but it is the Holy Spirit that applies that work to those who believe on Jesus Christ. Now, these are just some of the things the Holy Spirit does in that work of regeneration and salvation. I'm going to try to go quickly because I have 10 pages of notes, and there's no way that we are getting through that this morning. Don't worry. Don't worry. Um, But here we go, okay? So, giving us this new disposition, coming into our lives with this new power, the Holy Spirit does this. Uh, And I, I kind of put them, I think, in order of importance. First of all, the Holy Spirit makes known the love of God to us. He makes it alive. He makes it real to us. Now, maybe you've heard all your life that God loves you. Maybe you've heard all your life that God loved you so much that he sent his one and only son, that you might be saved by believing in him. But when this work of regeneration happens, the Holy Spirit comes in, and all of a sudden you know You know that you know that you know. Cathartically, you feel and experience the love of God. Romans 8 puts it like this. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves. You're not just under submission. You're not just allowed into the presence of God and he just, uh, you know, like, okay, you can be here. I guess that's fine. No, it is so much greater than that. There is no fear in the presence of God. Rather, the spirit that we receive brought about our adoption. We are actually privileged, loved children. And by the spirit, it says, we cry out, Abba, Father. We cry out, Daddy. We cry out with this intimate language of a personal relationship with God, that God has a tender heart toward us, that God isn't just waiting to belt us, that God isn't just waiting to catch us in sin or to repay us for all the years that we ignored him and rebelled against him. No, he has a tender, compassionate, kind heart towards us. And the Spirit makes that known. And then simultaneously, this, or, well, yes, the Spirit himself testifies, Paul says, with our spirit that we are God's children. God's children, beloved of God. Paul speaks in another place 
about how it is the Holy Spirit who pours out the love of God into our hearts. And again, in another place, he says that the Holy Spirit's revelation of God's love causes us to cry back in love and adoration. Father, so it's this double work that the Holy Spirit does. He makes known the love of God to us, and simultaneously, then we cry out, Father, we love him in return. And there's this trust There's this confidence that the Spirit brings when he comes into the life of the Christian. The Holy Spirit indwells the Christian, which means, and I know this is super weird, right? This is weird stuff. So we live in a really weird place. A very, you ever walk, um, you ever walk? I hope you do. Um, You ever going around town, meeting people, getting into conversations with people, maybe about religion or about spirituality? What's the common thing people say in Sonoma County? I am not religious. I am? Thank you. There it is, right? We live in a very spiritual place. And it's crazy to me that Christians, more than anybody else, seem to deny the weirdness of Christianity. We talk of spirit. We talk of spirits. We talk of spiritual warfare. We talk about God's presence moving and speaking to us. And you know what? The pagans do it too. Why are we afraid to talk about the Holy Spirit? Why do we want to sweep that under the rug? Like, God speaks to me. Okay, crazy. Like, you know what? People think trees speak to them. So I think it makes a lot more sense if God speaks to us. And I think we could talk about that, right? Actually, Nikolai and I have talked about that we often run, we have many times run into pagans. Like we're talking like dirt-worshipping, tree-hugging pagans. Like, I worship Zeus. I worship Thor. Right? Like, people like this. And what they think about Christians is that we are unspiritual. We don't believe in the spiritual realm. We don't believe in miracles. This is a denial of the story of God. That we are engaged in a spiritual war. We should not deny that. Church, we should press into that. So here's some weird stuff, right? All I have to say, this Holy Spirit, the Bible says, takes up residence in the life of a Christian. God's Spirit comes and lives inside of us. I don't know how it works, and if I was talking to my kids, they'd be asking, like, well, how does he fit in there? I don't know, right? I don't know how he fits in there. But somehow, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the life of the Christian, And the Bible says this many times, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't see him, it doesn't know him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's Jesus. Paul says, do you not know, church, that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? And again, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. You are his possession to do his will, to build his kingdom, to bring glory and honor to his great name. Christianity is weird. We're filled with God's spirit, but we should press into that weirdness. Another thing that the Holy Spirit does is he baptizes us. He makes us family. And he, the Bible says, breaks down, Jesus Christ broke down the middle wall of separation. We just sang, O come desire of nations and bind and won the hearts of all mankind. Bid our sad division cease and be yourself our king of peace. This is what Jesus did in the work of the cross. He removed all 
tribal, racial distinctions, caste systems. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are one in Christ Jesus. There's no tears. We are one family. And the Holy Spirit does that. He gives us a love for one another. He ties us and binds us together. Have you ever had the experience of visiting another church or meeting a group of believers and just immediately you click with them? Like you spent five minutes together and it's like, I've known these people my whole life. We're family. I I have had the privilege of traveling uh, around the world and have had this experience so many times. And, and these are relationships that I still have to this day because I spent a short amount of time with other believers. And it's this work of the Holy Spirit making us one, bringing us into one family, knitting our hearts and our lives together to be God's one family, God's one body. The Holy Spirit also does a work of sealing. And sealing, this isn't really a term we use uh, in, in our day and age, but sealing speaks of several things. It speaks of a security that we have. It speaks of ownership. And it speaks also of a guarantee. I don't even know if I'm going to go into all of these. Uh, but we read this in Ephesians when we started. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom you also, having believed, were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the seal in ancient times was um, a mark of authentic, authentic, authentication. Good Lord. It was a mark of authentication. And it's this idea that God marks his people with his spirit and says, they're mine. My prized possession, they belong to me. I am theirs they are mine. But it also means um, God is marking us for, for that last day. The, the idea is almost like when God finally cleans house, when God makes all things new, that all of his possessions are marked. They're tagged. You, you know, you do this when you move houses, right? It's like, okay, kitchen, dishes, that's where that goes. You know, bedroom, clothes, hangers, that's where that goes. Well, the idea here is that God has marked every single one of his people with his Holy Spirit so that he knows who are his. And it's this seal of authentication. We are actually the children of God. We have him, he has us, we're his possession, and it's a guarantee that God will never lose us. We won't be misplaced in the move, right? Those are some words of comfort. When God makes all things new, he's not going to misplace you. He's got you tagged. He's got you marked with the Holy Spirit. Now, quickly, the continual work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. Right? So we just looked through like regeneration, um, baptism, sealing, all this stuff. Those are major doctrines that, seriously, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks studying. But here's a little bit more about what the Holy Spirit does in the life of the Christian. He fills. The Holy Spirit fills the life of the Christians. And Christians are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which is really interesting. Be filled with the Spirit, Paul says. Here it is, Ephesians 5.18. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, which leads you to do all sorts of stupid things, right? Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, this is interesting to me because alcohol is what we call a depressant. It's not that it makes you depressed, right? I guess it could, depending on how much you drink. But the idea is is that it 
suppresses what is in. And that's why people get happy, right? They're just forgetting all of their troubles and trials and woes and woohoo, you know, right? Or they're just like, you know, like the wild drunk getting all crazy thinking he can fight anybody or she can fight anybody, right? It suppresses, it's a depressant. The Holy Spirit, rather, when he invades our lives, he doesn't just sweep all of our problems under the rug, but he works a deep, deep work of transforming us, of healing us. And Paul, I think a number of things he's saying here is that Christians should not simply suppress the past, sin, brokenness, pain, but no, they should call upon the Holy Spirit to be healed from that brokenness and that pain. That's what Paul's calling us to do. Another thing that he's calling us to do is in the same way that people are controlled by alcohol, we are to be under the control and influence of the Holy Spirit. And we see this being filled with the Holy Spirit all over the New Testament. Um, All throughout the book of Acts, I mentioned this last week, the apostles and the church are filled again and again with the Holy Spirit. And the result of this is always that they are filled with a new boldness. Um, the, the Holy Spirit, I, I think this happens because the Holy Spirit, as we were looking at a moment ago, makes known the love of God to us, makes known the, the character of God to us. And what do we know about God? Oh, we know God's mercy, his compassion, his great love, his forgiveness. We also know that he is sovereign, almighty God, that there is nothing in all of heaven and earth greater than him. Now think when you are thinking in that, when you are banking on that, isn't that going to give you a boldness? The only person in all of the universe that actually matters loves me, has forgiven me, made me a child who cares what anybody else thinks about you. Who cares? You are filled, you are justified by the work of Jesus Christ and it fills your heart. You don't need the love of anyone else. The love of God has been poured out into your heart. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Also, the Holy Spirit reassures us not just of the love of God, but the power of God. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Not height, not depth, not width, not length. Nothing in heaven, nothing in earth, not angels. No powers, no spiritual beings. Not famine, not nakedness, not sword. No, there is nothing in all of creation. Why? Because our God is powerful. Our God is the most high God. And that should bring boldness to us, church. That should bring a great peace, boldness, and confidence to our lives. So we can tell people the truth. We can make known the gospel, even though the gospel can be offensive. Hey, God loves you because he loves you, not because you're good, not because you have done anything to deserve it, but he loves you. And guess what? Every single human being on their own is headed towards separation from God eternally. That's kind of bad news, you know, at first, right? But it's so that we can give the good news. And the gospel and the Holy Spirit's work in our lives frees us to tell people the truth about their lives. This is what the Holy Spirit does. And I'm taking too long... Also, being filled with the Holy Spirit includes joy, peace, hope, and many other qualities that describe inner contentment and satisfaction. I think this goes back to the idea of you know, alcohol versus the Spirit. 
Oh, we can try to get to happiness through alcohol, but instead we can get true joy, true peace, true comfort through the power of the Holy Spirit, through knowing our God and knowing his character. Okay, moving on. The Holy Spirit fills us, but he also guides us. The Christian is commanded to walk in the Spirit and to be led by the Spirit. Paul tells us this in Galatians 5. I say walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill selfishness. You won't do what your sinful heart wants to do to satisfy yourself apart from God. He says if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now, being led by the Spirit enables us not to fulfill the desires of the flesh. It enables us not to feed our sinful nature or natural inclinations, selfishness, self-reliance, pride, but instead causes us to obey the Spirit. And, and when we talk about obeying the Spirit, that isn't just like, you know, like, I am obeying the Spirit, and so I am being spiritual and weird, right? What is it? They're very concrete things. Love. To desire and pursue the best for others. Joy, uh, uh, inner contentment and happiness despite our circumstance. Peace, a restfulness and confidence. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. The list goes on. This is what God has for us, and this is what the Holy Spirit wants to guide us into. And as he does that, I believe he also wants to guide us, as we see in the book of Acts, to different people. God has um, like a divine calendar, I think, it seems to me at least. You know, you read in the book of Acts about like Philip, and he's hanging out in um, Samaria, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit's like, hey, we're going down to the desert, Philip's like, okay. So he goes down to the desert and he meets there, you know, an Ethiopian eunuch who's reading the scroll of Isaiah and has this crazy conversation with him. The guy gives his life to Jesus Christ and is baptized. And then the next thing we know, the Holy Spirit catches Philip and takes him uh, to the coast. Right? God has this divine, like, appointment calendar and he's guiding Philip and he's guiding the apostles all throughout the book of Acts in the early church to these appointments to meet with people, to tell them about the love of God, to heal and comfort people, to encourage people. The Holy Spirit guides the Christian. He guides the church. He empowers us. I mentioned a little bit ago, the Christian is in a spiritual battle, the flesh against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. The will of who we used to be is wrestling with the new life of Jesus at work in us. And so the indwelling of the Spirit provides power to choose God's way and God's truth, as well as the power to put to death the old ways of thinking, speaking, and living. Paul talks about this in Galatians and Romans. The Spirit produces the character of God in us. He makes us like Jesus. That's what he wants to do. What does God want to do in your life? God has a wonderful plan for your life. What does God want to do? Does he want to take you to Africa? Maybe. Does he want to take you to Zimbabwe? Maybe. Does he want to take you to the deepest, darkest parts of China? Maybe. But more than all of that, what God wants to do is he wants to transform you to the likeness of Jesus Christ. He wants to do an inner working of virtue and character in you to make you like his son. And that's the way that the Bible often speaks about God's will and God's spirit at work in the life of the Christian. A couple more. We have to, actually, I've got to fly through these. Okay, he teaches. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. He guides us into God's truth. He gives us discernment. There are passages of scripture that I can email you later about this. We open up the Bible. The Holy Spirit is present to make God's word uh, not only true, but understandable and discernible, real and applicable to our lives. He teaches us God's ways and applies them to our heart. He brings freedom. This is incredible. This is the American dream, right? 
freedom, the, to, to pursue liberty and happiness. And scripture says only the spirit of God can bring true freedom. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I talked about this a minute ago, but when, we, when the Holy Spirit applies the gospel to our hearts, it brings a new and profound freedom, a freedom from sin. I don't have to keep going back to these things that won't fulfill me. It brings a freedom from meaninglessness. I have a purpose in my life. God loves me and he has a wonderful plan for me that involves eternity and ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ, being conformed to his image. Freedom to love God, freedom to be loved by God, freedom to love others, freedom to choose righteousness and resist sin, freedom to receive all that God has for us. On, going on, the Holy Spirit convicts. When our lives are out of joint, when we are not in step with the Holy Spirit, the Holy, yeah, with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit speaks and convicts us, convicts us to get back to Jesus, to apply the blood of his cross to our lives, to ask for forgiveness, to turn and repent and return to the Lord, to live lives that are compatible with following Jesus and being members of God's family and his kingdom. He equips the church with spiritual leadership and gifting so we can glorify God and encourage and help others. And the list goes on of all that the Holy Spirit does. We don't have time, as I said. But, I mean, isn't this stuff incredible? Let me just say this, kind of wrapping up this section. The primary objective of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian is to form the life of God in us. That God's voice would be the most powerful and prevalent voice. That he would have ultimate authority and sway over our lives. That God's ways would have the ultimate authority over our lives. That his ways, not our ways. That his vision, not our vision. That God's character and not our old, selfish, self-reliant, prideful character would be at work in our lives. His ways, his truth, his love, and character. We see this in the fruit of the Spirit. We see this as characterized in the Sermon on the Mount. The Holy Spirit forms this in us, this life of God in us. The Holy Spirit gives us the provision of divine power to execute the Christian way of life and to seek and build the kingdom of God in the places he has called us. It is through the Holy Spirit that we assimilate all that Jesus did on the cross. Now, question, do I have the Holy Spirit? It's funny to me, and this is a good thing, but also could be a bad thing, I guess. Seems to me, though, that whenever you do lists like this of like, hey, this is what the Bible says about the Christian, people are like, hmm, interesting. Doesn't really seem to line up with my life. That's curious, right? <laughs> this is not my primary purpose this morning, and I'll mention that in a second. But I think it does lead us to ask that question, okay, if this is what the Holy Spirit does in the life of the Christian, do I have the Spirit? Am I really a Christian? Well, according to the Bible, every person that has committed their life to Jesus Christ, or as we call it, has been born again, has received the Holy Spirit. In John 3, Jesus describes new birth as a spiritual birth by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the means by which we become Christians. So if you believed in Jesus, that his death covers your sin, that now you are part of God's family, part of God's kingdom, all because of what Jesus did, a sheer act of grace, God has given you his Holy Spirit now to assimilate that life of Jesus, the Christian life. But often our experience as Christians is that we don't feel the Holy Spirit, isn't it? I mean, how many of you, like, 
could say, I feel the Holy Spirit. Is there anybody? I'm just wondering. I, sometimes I get this all wrong, the hand-raising thing. I'm going to try to do it right today. Anybody feel like, I feel the Holy Spirit? Yeah, okay. So there's a few of you. But I think by and large, we would say, yeah, maybe at one time, but now I don't feel the Holy Spirit. I don't sense his presence or work in my life. And I I really hate to use that word feel because I think Western culture is obsessed with feeling rather than an over-truth. And so I don't want to give too much credence to feeling But I think a good question to ask is, if all Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit, why do I not experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Why do I not experience the satisfaction of the Holy Spirit? Why do I not experience the love of God like that? Why do I feel like God's angry with me? Why do I feel like God's disappointed in me? Why do I feel like God is withholding? Why, right? These are good questions to ask. I'm glad you asked them. Why does my life or lifestyle seem inconsistent with the Holy Spirit's work in the life of Jesus? Why don't I desire the things of God? Why is my life defined more by sin than by righteousness? Let's talk about that. The Bible mentions many times that though Christians have the Holy Spirit, we can do what's called quenching or grieving the Holy Spirit. You think about the idea of quenching someone's thirst, right? I'm so thirsty, right? And so you drink and you drink and drink and what? Until there's no more desire. Well, in the same way, the Bible says that we can actually stop the Holy Spirit. We can quench him. We can dry up his work in our life. And so that... You know, if the Bible uses the metaphor for water for the Spirit many times, so that the water of the Spirit is not flowing in our lives anymore. The Bible also talks about that we can offend or grieve the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 4.30, Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't do that. Don't, don't live a life that is inconsistent with the way of God. This will cause the Holy Spirit to be sad. Isn't that crazy to think about? Listen to this. Brian Chapel says, The same spirit who convicts my heart of sin generates in me love for God, gives me new birth, provides my apprehension of the beauty of grace in the world, seals my redemption until the coming of my Lord. This same spirit who loves me so intimately and perfectly, I can cause to grieve. I can cause to be sad. Do you guys know that God gets sad? Do you know that it breaks the heart of God? You can see this so many times in the Old Testament and a few times in the New Testament where God is heavy-hearted. God is sorrowful, broken-hearted because his people are constantly going after false gods. Wells of water, God says, that are dry and cracked and cannot satisfy. And they have forsaken me, he says, the fountain of living waters. God says to David after his affair with Bathsheba and his murder of his good friend Uriah, he says, David, I made you the king of Israel. I lifted you from being a shepherd in the fields and I gave you the house of Saul. And if this wasn't enough, I would have done much, much more. God looks at us, his people, and he says, what are you looking for? And where do you think you're going to find it? 
But sadly, this is the truth of the Christian life. We experience all these things of the Holy Spirit maybe when we first come to faith in Christ, but we plateau. Worldliness, just, you know, keeping up with the Joneses or, you know, some narrative has taken over control of our lives and it's sucked out, it's dried up a love for God, a desire for the things of God. Intentional practices to cultivate the life of God in us. And the Bible says these things quench or grieve the Holy Spirit. So it's no wonder that the church doesn't experience the Holy Spirit in the way that the New Testament describes. Because we have a sickly worldliness. And we are satisfied, like C.S. Lewis says, with mud pies when God offers us a holiday at sea. We're satisfied with drink and sex when God offers us infinite joy. But you know what? God says, return to me and I will return to you. Paul says, Timothy, if anyone cleanses himself from this worldliness and these desires of these things, he will be a vessel that is set apart, ready to be used by God. There is a way, if you will, to remove that rubble and those rocks and trash and whatever it is that allows the Holy Spirit to flow again in our lives. But it comes through repentance and confession. Confessing, God, I've been pursuing things other than you. I have been going after things that cannot satisfy. Lord, I have been distracted by things. Lord, I want to return to you. I want to experience the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit again. It's confessing and then it's turning to God. It's getting rid of that stuff. And simultaneously, I'm getting rid of this and I'm turning my gaze. I'm turning all my desire. I'm turning my my heart, passions over to God. These are the things that invite the Holy Spirit. Now let me just say, I, I think... I totally got ahead of myself and like finished my sermon just now, but let me just back up a little bit because I think there's some important things to say. Um, so sin is like the number one thing the Bible talks about that we can do to grieve the Holy Spirit. And so this would be, you know, sin, yes, in terms of immorality. Um, whether that's sexual sin, that's lying, just a life that's lived by deceit and hypocrisy. That's prejudice, greed, anger, hate, and and the like. All these will grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. But the Bible also speaks repeatedly of sin in terms of selfishness, self-reliance, and pride. I've said this like three times already in the sermon. And interesting, in Ephesians 4.30, when Paul says, do not grieve the Spirit, listen to the things that he lists there. He says, don't grieve the Spirit by sowing discord and disunity among God's people. How do we do that? By not forgiving, by being bitter, by backbiting and slandering by using harsh and critical speech that discourages and tears people down. If the Holy Spirit is the one that has baptized us and made us one family, any time that we break that, we are grieving the Holy Spirit. Any time that we dismantle people's lives, criticize people harshly without love, without the grace of God, We dismantle that work that the Spirit wants to do in unifying the church. This grieves him. This makes him very sad. So sin will grieve the Spirit. 
any time we do not think, speak, and act in love toward others. I think another way we grieve the Holy Spirit is compromise and counterfeit. And I mentioned this last week, but if you're not operating in and depending on the Spirit, you don't just go neutral. Instead, you're compromising the Spirit. You're counterfeiting the work of the Holy Spirit, whether that's relying on substance, food, alcohol, prescription meds, narcotics, codependency, sex outside the biblical boundaries of marriage, anger, rather than the joy, peace, and righteousness that we are offered in the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just say one thing quick. This is nuanced, of course, because there are people that deal with medical conditions clinical depression, things like that. You're going through a hard season in your life, and I am not here to pound you and say, well, it's just because you need the Holy Spirit. But I'm talking about normal rhythms of life where I am not leaning into the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to alcohol to bring me joy or to bring me peace. I'm going to whatever meds to bring me joy, peace. I'm going to codependency to bring me joy and peace rather than going to the Holy Spirit and asking him to bring me what he offers Of course, listening and conforming our lives to the desires of what, just what we want, that will grieve the Spirit. Conforming our lives to the pattern of the world, what the world says is worthy and um, worthy of sacrificing, that will grieve the Spirit, right? So what narrative are we allowing to shape our lives? I mentioned that a minute ago. Who has the greatest influence? So when we look more like the culture and price friendship with the world over friendship with Jesus, it grieves the Holy Spirit. It causes him, James says, to be jealous. So God, the Holy Spirit, can get sad, and he also gets jealous. Like, what the heck are you courting her for? I redeemed you. I poured out the love of the Father into your heart and the grace of the Lord Jesus. Where are you going? What are you looking for? And what do you think you're going to find? That's what the Holy Spirit would say to us. He's jealous over the attention that we give to the world or the flesh. These quench the Spirit. I have a list here of all the fruits of the Spirit. We did this when we did Galatians. And like the definition of that gift, or excuse me, that fruit of the Spirit, and then the counterfeit. And I'm just going to race through them so quick. Ready? Okay, so love, according to the Holy Spirit, to serve a person for their good and intrinsic value. The counterfeit, selfish affection, just doing things because it makes me feel good. Helping people because it makes me feel good. Joy, delight in God and his salvation, for the sheer beauty of worth of who he is. The counterfeit, elation that comes with blessings, not the blesser. Mood swings based on circumstances, right? So just uh, temporary happiness. Peace. The definition, confidence and rest in the wisdom and sovereignty of God, counterfeit, indifference, apathy, not caring about something. I don't care. Yeah, you're just a jerk. Good job. Like, that's nothing to be proud about. Oh, nothing moves me. Yeah, you're so apathetic to, like, awful things that happen in the world. You're not moved by them. That is not peace. That is not God's peace. God is moved by the suffering of the world. Kindness, practical kindness with vulnerability out of deep inner security, counterfeit, manipulative good deeds, doing things to be seen by others. Goodness, honesty, integrity, transparency, counterfeit truth without love, getting it off my chest. I just need to say this, right? I'm just going to like slam you with this for your sake. Um, Faithfulness, what's the definition? Loyalty, courage, counterfeit. Love without truth. Being loyal when you should be willing to confront or challenge. Right? Oh, no, I'm just a really good friend. I just stick by them. No, you need to speak the truth to them in a way that is gracious, humble, and loving. 
You're not being faithful. You're being a coward. And you're prizing friendship over the Spirit and the will of God and and actual true friendship. Self-control, last one. Ability to choose the urgent over the important thing. Counterfeit, the slightly surprising counterfeit is a willpower which is based on pride, the need to feel in control. And Paul says the way that we don't counterfeit the Spirit is that we, we have to kill the flesh and we have to feed the work of the Spirit in our lives. And again, that, that comes from confession. That comes from repentance. That comes from, I'm going to get rid of these normal ways that I think or these practices that have kind of taken hold of me and I'm going to return back to Scripture. I'm going to return back to what the Lord prizes. And the last one, I think, is intentional rhythms. And I'll say this and then we'll close. Um, so this is where I'm at right now. I've been experiencing probably three months if not more, maybe three months ago, I just realized what was happening. Guys, something's wrong with men. It's like, all of a sudden, you're like, I think I'm depressed. It's been two years, you know? All of a sudden, you realize. Um, women know, like, within the first five minutes that they're depressed. You ladies are amazing. I don't know how you're so in touch with yourselves. Um, but, yeah, so, sorry, enough about me. But I realize I'm just dry, and, and so what I, I realize, I begin this year with intentional rhythms of prayer, of confession, of um, just fervently seeking the Lord. I, I begin this year with hope, uh, excitement about what God would do, and just a really healthy rhythm um, of these things, a healthy rhythm of fellowship and all these things. And I've just gotten out of rhythm, it's plain and simple. And it's not that my life is marked by sin uh, or gross sin. Of course, I'm a sinner. I sin just like everybody else. But it's not marked by some gross sin or some gross compromise. You know, it's just simply like, I'm just not connecting with the Lord. I'm just not making time for the Lord like I should, being his child, being a part of his family, being a member of his church and a citizen of his kingdom. I'm just not giving it priority in the way that I should, especially as your pastor. Good Lord. Um, and so I've been on this journey for the last couple you know, weeks or so, like, okay, Lord, what is it? And I'm getting in the Word again. I'm, I'm reading a book by Eugene P- Peterson because he's one of my favorite. He always takes me there. He's a good guide back to spiritual uh, conformity. And so I'm just asking the Lord, okay, God, what is it? As I get back in tune with the Lord through uh, Scripture reading, through prayer, and through confession, and fellowship, and, and, and worship, and thanksgiving, okay, Lord, now speak to me. What is it? And I think that this is probably what many of you need as well. You need to reconnect with the Lord and get back into an intentional spiritual rhythm. Listen to the way David puts this in Psalm 63. When David felt dry and thirsty for God, this is what he did. He says, you are my God, God, and so earnestly I seek you. So he remembers, we're in covenant together. We are in a deep, deep relationship. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. You ever felt like that? Yes, I have. Thank you, David. He says, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. So just notice for a second what David is doing. I'm dry. I'm thirsty. It's like parched land. There's no water. So earnestly I seek you. David individually is going to seek the Lord. Fervently he's going to seek the Lord. He's going to make it focus in his life. 
but he's also going to do it in the corporate setting. It's not just an individual thing. He says, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. That is a communal thing. That is the temple where all of God's people would come to worship. So he's not just doing it individually, but when he comes together with the people of God, he's seeking the Lord. God, what do you have to say? What are you going to do? How are you going to direct me by your spirit? How are you going to satisfy those longings? How are you going to use me to satisfy the longings of others by the power of the spirit? It's individual. It's communal. And then he says, because your love is better than life. Wow. One thing have I desired about the Lord. David gets it that God's love is the greatest thing that there is. Because your love is better than life. God, we do not believe that. Help us to believe that. That God's love, his grace, his goodness, his mercy, his work in our lives is better than anything else. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I'm going to talk about you. I'm going to worship and honor you. I will praise you all of my days. My life is about praising you. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of food. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Notice, church, the rhythm of David's life. He was dry. He was empty. He was thirsty. And so he made seeking the Lord number one priority. And he said, I was fully satisfied. Fully satisfied with the richest food. Your love is better than life. Worship came forth from his life because he reorganized his life. He reprioritized his life to seek the Lord first. That's the way that the Holy Spirit breaks into our lives. If we have plateaued, if we have grieved him through our sin, our compromise, counterfeiting him, intentionally, Not just confession and repentance, but then intentional practice, intentional rhythms of seeking the Lord and seeking him first because his love is better than life. And church, I believe that the Holy Spirit has more that he wants to do in the individuals and communal life here at Refuge. But I believe it will only come as we we make a priority, words, of seeking the life of God, seeking what he has. I believe there are ministries, visions, empowerings, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, tongues, gift of faith, and discernment, missions, evangelism, outreach, healings, and blessings that the Lord wants to do. But it's only going to come as we clean house personally. We reprioritize our lives. Make the first things first as we stop and turn away from sin turn away from spiritual apathy, turn away from compromising with worldliness and turn our hearts to the Lord. And so that's what we're going to do this morning as we close our time. I don't even know how long I talked for. That actually wasn't that bad, right? It wasn't that bad. But this is what we want to do because I want to make a change here in the Sunday morning rhythms of refuge because God has called and gifted every single one of you, if you are a Christian, with his spirit, with words of wisdom, with words of knowledge, with discernment, 
with words of affirmation. I remember one day I was just walking around the church after service and I just saw a young guy and just know his life story. He just comes from a broken home, a broken background. And I just went up and I just told him, like, God loves you and he's so proud of you. He's so proud to be your father. And he has such good things for you. And I just felt like that was the word of the Lord for him that day. Just to affirm him that he was loved by God, cherished by God, and God had good things for him. God has, I think, innumerable opportunities, appointments for us, church, to walk in. Before service, after service, Monday through Saturday. But again, I think it comes saying, yeah, I've been living in spiritual apathy. I've been just kind of going to church and just being a consumer. I've just been kind of sitting here and taking it in and then I go home and I do my thing. God has a work for all of us to do. Gifts and, and, and power and, and vision that he wants to cast into our life. And it is our responsibility to make room for that. So let's do this. Let's pray together. A prayer of turning back to the Lord. And then I just want to take a few moments just to be quiet together and just allow for individual confession this morning. And if this is you that I've been describing this morning, Max, Nikolai, the prayer team are going to be at the back and they want to pray for you. Pray that there would be a renewal and refreshment from the Holy Spirit. That that garbage that has stopped the Holy Spirit from working in your life, that has quenched or grieved the Spirit, would be removed and that the, the water of the Spirit would flow again in your life and God would do a new work. So they're available and we're just going to do that. We'll go over our time of worship. We'll take the Eucharist together, and then we'll, uh, we'll call it a service, right? So, Lord, you said to the people of Israel in Zechariah 1.3, return to me, and I will return to you. And, Lord, you are so good to us. Lord, what kind of love just holds out their hand to receive and to bless in just an unrelenting way like you do. Truly, Lord, as the Bible says again and again, your mercy is steadfast. Your love is unfailing. And so, Lord, would we return to you as you call us to that this morning, return to you being confident that you will return to us, that you will renew our hearts, our lives, that you will refresh us by your spirit, and as Jesus said, Lord, that our own lives will become vessels of the Holy Spirit because, Lord, we have a whole city that is hungering and thirsting for meaning, for life, for fulfillment. And so, Lord, would you restore us first and foremost? Bring us back to you, God. Cause the Spirit to flow again in our lives, Lord, that we might know your love deep in our hearts.
that we might know the grace and forgiveness that Jesus paid for at the cross and that it is free for us. Lord, that we might know our privilege as your sons and daughters to receive all that you have for us. Filling, guiding, conviction, help, power, boldness, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move and work in this place.